Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Hurt Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Okay, let's talk a little environment. We got another one of our great young voices contributors. Uh, she is a she is a marketing and media manager. She writes all over the place, including the OC Register and the Hill. She's a graduate of San Jose State University. Well, if you got to go to school on the West Coast, I guess there are worse places than having to be at the beach in the valley. Uh, she's also the co-host of the really good Whiskey Bench podcast. Kat Dwyer, how are you, ma'am? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to have you. Okay, so we're going to cut against the grain of what a lot of people think is common knowledge or the common consensus, folks call it. There's this loud thing in social media, news media, that uh, the market or capitalism or whatever you want to call it is bad for the environment. You've been writing in fee.org, though. You list a couple of examples of where actually, no, the market's actually doing a pretty good job for the environment in a couple of ways. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's there's a there is sort of a misconception amongst uh, the environmentalist community uh, that that sort of thinks that that markets are what causes environmental problems. Um, but what I've written about in Fee and what the organization I work for, Perk, the Property and Environment Research Center, uh, what we focus on is identifying uh, sort of market solutions to environmental challenges. Um, so in the piece, I talk about sort of how markets are helping conserve water, um, helping sustain wildlife habitat, and helping get really critical forest restoration work done on the ground in a timely manner. Now, it's not that we don't know that there are companies out there that take advantage of environmental things. We obviously know that this is an accountability issue that both, uh, frankly, also the U.S. government needs to be accountable, some of the things they've done over the years. Governments, policies, companies. This all kind of starts with a little bit of a level of an accountability thing, right, as to whether or not folks are doing good. But, but there's this spectrum here where, yeah, there's a lot of bad, but we need to kind of stop and highlight the good stuff that's happening as well, don't we? We do. Um, and I think there's also a misconception about the role that property rights play in conserving resources. Um, but property rights are really critical um, in incentivizing resource conservation and making sure that uh, scarce resources are put to their, their highest valued use. Um, and often in the example of sort of water conservation, sometimes uh, government regulation or government management actually gets in the way of conservation. Um, so so I, can, I can dive into that a little bit if you're interested. I am interested because I used to live in Vegas and, and this is uh, 10, 11 years ago now. And even then they were talking about like, wow, Lake Mead's almost empty and it's even worse now. Uh, and the joke was in Las Vegas, like, well, we don't have any water because it all goes to SoCal. You're out yeah. west, though. This water thing is really becoming a really, really thing. Just real quickly before we get into the details of it, 
because I know we have a little bit of East Coast bias media when you're on the East Coast. This water thing in the West is getting to be a real world thing. It def yeah, it definitely is. Um, it's so I mean, drought is sort of a recurring phenomenon in the in the western part of the United States. It's something that's inevitable that you know we have to prepare for. Um, and certainly in the last several years, it's uh, we're sort of in a new phase of drought, um, and it's that has been exacerbated this year um, in large part due to to La Nina weather patterns. So um, thankfully, I, I'm now I left California. I'm now in Montana. I did that before the pandemic. I'll give myself a little break there. Um, but uh, so we're at almost normal snowpack levels in, in a good portion of the state, but sort of um, certainly the, the southwest of the United States um, is suffering from really bad drought. Um, and as you know, like Lake Mead is in critical condition. Um, so, so tools to help conserve water are sort of more important than ever. Um, and water markets is one way um, that sort of the private sector can step in and help conserve water. Um, so sort of the way, uh, well, I'll, I'll give an example first. One of the groups that is helping do this um, is a conservation group called Trout Unlimited that I'm sure, uh, I'm sure many of your listeners are probably familiar with. Um, what they do, uh, they have been partnering uh, with, with landowners who have water rights, um, primarily sort of ag producers or farmers, ranchers, um, to leave some of their water in stream at critical times to help support fish populations. Um, so basically Trout Unlimited compensates them um, in exchange for leaving some of the water in stream um, and it benefits the fish and it benefits uh, the farmer. Um, now that can happen in states where uh, in stream flow is considered a beneficial use. Um, and unfortunately that is not the case across every state in the West. Um, and it's increasingly becoming the new normal, but historically that's not the way uh, sort of water rights were managed. Um, historically, water rights were um, sort of uh, designated by the prior appropriations doctrine, which is sort of more commonly known as kind of first in time, first in right. So the first person to settle the land and put water to uh, a productive use or a beneficial use is the legal term. Um, they had rights to that water and they were the senior water rights holders. Um, and what was considered a beneficial use was determined by the government. Um, and typically that meant uh, a, a traditionally productive use like agriculture, uh, which made sense when we were trying to develop the West. Um, but increasingly sort of um, values are changing and certainly with the realities of drought, uh, conservation is increasingly becoming um, uh, valuable. Uh, so where uh, the states that have allowed in-stream flow to be a beneficial use, um, it has sort of opened up the opportunity for water markets, um, which is, it, it's a great way to kind of utilize price signals by allowing water to be put to its highest value use. And sometimes that is uh, agriculture, certainly, and sometimes it's water conservation. Um, so when government has gotten out of the way, or at least sort of, um, liberalize the regulations over water rights. Uh, it has opened up this opportunity um, for these private voluntary exchanges to help conserve water. Yeah. And for people who are like, well, what does fish got to do with anything? Uh, the fish population, a healthy fish population, that is something conservationists and fishermen will tell you. That's kind of the early warning system to whether you're having problems with a, something like a water table or the water thing. That tells you ahead of time, hey, there's a big problem here because they're way more sensitive to us is 
we just discovered this on the east coast with the Kmore situation with the Cape Fear River. Uh, they that's how they figured it out. The the fish migration patterns changed, the ecosystem changed. Lo and behold, 10, 15 years later, you got major water problems. So when people say, Well, what's fish got to do with it? They got a lot to do with it, especially when you start talking about farmers down the road start running out of water. Right, right. Um, and, and another example that maybe more directly relates to sort of drought relief for, for communities. Um, the so Native American tribes have have their own water rights on their reservations, but many of them are limited from being able to sell their water off reservations, off reservation, meaning to to municipalities and other communities that are not on the reservation. Um, it requires an act of Congress for them to be able to do that, which is a totally sort of tedious uh, process. Um, so that's something else that, that Perk, the group I work for, has been looking into, um, trying to advocate to change that so, so tribes have more sovereignty over their water rights and can therefore help you know, alleviate the drought in the West if they so choose to by selling their water to off-reservation users. Um, so just another example of where you know, maybe you know, I'll give the government benefit of the doubt. Maybe well-intentioned regulations um, have have really um, created environmental harm down the road. Yeah, and we've talked about it in other areas, but folks that haven't lived out west or been out west, again, you know, there's East Coast bias to the media. We all know this. Um, we've talked about it in things like criminal justice and sort of things like this. When you have large swaths of the areas out west that are a lot of reservation land out there, a lot of tribal land out there, there's a lot of government-owned land, that something like 80, 89% of the state of Nevada is owned by the United States government. Things like uh, land usage, water uses, it gets legally complicated really, really fast because this isn't just normal land stuff. It's government land. It's tribal land that has its reservation. There's a lot of overlapping stuff when it comes to rights like this, isn't there? Oh yeah, there there absolutely are. the 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 way water rights are managed um, is incredibly complicated. The sort of very broad generalization I gave of the prior appropriations doctrine and now allowing for different, you know, definitions of beneficial uses definitely a simplified version of that. And the work Trout Unlimited is doing, um, it has to be very very much tailored to very specific uh, landscapes, water systems, and and landowners who have specific rights. Yeah. And for those of you that are curious, just last Supreme Court term, we still had two states suing each other over water rights. So it's an ongoing thing. Uh, you mentioned it to kind of uh, put a bow on this a little bit. You uh, summarized it this way. You said harnessing markets in this way, this is from your fee.org piece, allows for this precious resource to be put to its highest value use and gives conservationists a price mechanism by which to realize water's conservation value. I know people kind of maybe roll their eyes and going, well, you can't price water. It's something everybody needs. Yeah, we understand that. But we're talking legislation. We're talking legal documents. You have to put valuation on these things because you've got to be able to write laws and policy about them, don't you? Well, that yes, that's very true. That's one reason. But another reason, too, sort of from an economic perspective is without a price signal or price mechanism, uh, that value can't it, it isn't defined. So it's unknown. Um, and, and without sort of rights, property rights over that resource, uh, you get, you wind up with the tragedy of the commons when nobody, when nobody owns it, everybody owns it. Right. And, and it can be depleted. So when we have a scarce resource like water in the West, um, having property rights over it so that it can be conserved and traded, um, and then having a price mechanism that helps determine who values this most, is it agriculture or is it conservationists in, you know, and that changes, it's all voluntary exchange. 
um, and it changes depending on you know the circumstances and the needs at the time. But those market tools help facilitate conserving that resource. And I think that's something that's um, largely you know not understood in the environmentalist uh, movement. Yeah, and that gap gets us right back to where we started with a lack of accountability because then nobody knows who to go for for the answers. Uh, talking to Kat Dwyer about her fee.org piece and some water stuff. We're going to take a quick break on her tell. We come back, going to talk sustaining wildlife. One of my favorite uh, conservation stories, going to talk a little elk. I love me some elk. And uh, we're also going to talk forest health, talk a little trees, uh, not just the tree hugging kind, the kind that we actually have some good news when it comes to trees in America. Uh, Kat Dwyer joining us on her tell. More right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell, talking environmental and conservation and some policy stuff and some practical examples of how the market isn't just the big bad part of environmentalists. There's actually good stuff going on. We like to highlight good stuff. Kat Dwyer joining us. Okay, we talked fish and water. Uh, let's get on dry land for a minute. Sustaining wildlife habitat. And you used an interesting uh, example here that I've kind of been following for a few years because I find it fascinating uh elk occupancy agreements so let's talk a little wildlife habitat for a minute yeah um so the the group i work with perk um partnered with another conservation group uh in montana called the greater yellowstone coalition um and the two of us worked with a uh a private ranching family in a beautiful spot of montana called the paradise valley um, and we worked with them to conserve nearly 500 acres of their ranching operation um, to be designated uh, elk winter range. Um, so to provide a little bit of context around this, um, basically the private lands in a place like Paradise Valley provide a really critical service of providing habitat for a whole host of species, one of them being uh, elk, which is a, a really important keystone species um, of what is known as the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, uh, which is one of the, if not the largest intact ecosystems in North America. Um, so they provide this habitat, but doing so comes at a cost to landowners. Elk, you know, have to, their cattle have to compete with forage with elk, uh, elk knock down fences, and they also potentially transfer um, a disease called brucellosis, which causes cattle to abort their young. Um, so providing this habitat comes at a real cost. Um, and many of these ranchers are, are truly just like barely hanging on. Um, and at the same time that they're dealing with this cost, there's there's really just sort of mounting uh, urban development pressure. Um, all of these damn Californians keep moving <laughs> here to Montana. Um, and uh, they, uh, so there's, there's just a huge pressure to, to develop a place like Paradise Valley. Um, and if that happens, then these large private working lands are gonna be subdivided into ranchettes and into you know, strip malls. Um, and we will lose that wildlife habitat completely. So Herc and we're trying to find a way to 
conserve this habitat, conserve these migration corridors, um, and while at the same time recognizing the really valuable critical role that private lands play um, in, in providing habitat. Um, so, you know, this elk occupancy agreement is essentially a shorter term habitat lease. Um, and it's an alternative to a more onerous model that the government puts forth, which are conservation easements. Um, you know, many landowners are willing and, and able to manage their land for conservation and to provide habitat. Um, but the conservation easements that the government offers require conservation in perpetuity. Um, so that comes with a lot of strings and not a lot of landowners are, are willing always to, to go, you know, go with that agreement. Um, so having other tools like an elk occupancy agreement or other similar shorter habitat leases uh, offers just more opportunity to help conserve, to conserve habitat um, and make sure that these working lands continue working and that elk have, um, you know, these migration corridors open. Yeah, we've talked about those easements with our friend Gabby Hoffman when she talks conservation with us. And the problem with that is, like you mentioned, that's that's kind of a one shot deal, because once you do it, it's almost you talked about an act of Congress. This literally would take an act of Congress to get those easements changed back over. Um, but we need to mention here, too, historically, this is a new twist on a very old problem settling the West. Of course, we know the extremes of them almost wiping out the buffalo as an invasive species, quote unquote, for all the cattle guys and the railroads. Um, this goes back again. We keep hearing it over and over again. Proper land usage, property rights. This is some very fundamental stuff to Americans that just keeps popping up. This just has kind of an environmental or a climate-based uh, overtone to it, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think something, you know, sort of our theme here of, of things that are overlooked within the environmental space, uh, private lands are often overlooked. Um, and Private landowners have, you know, over centuries learned how to properly manage their land, right? Um, and they're really our partners in conservation. Um, and like I said, the reality in a place like Paradise Valley, and this is an issue that's happening all across the West, it's it's really a choice between urban development or keeping these private lands working, which keeping them working means these are large open landscapes. They provide habitat. They also provide, you know, food, <laughs> which is critically important. Um, so there's a lot of value there. Uh, and a group like Perk, like we just don't, we don't view them as our enemy. We view them as our partners in conservation. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what the issue is, whether it's um, social justice, education, anything. A lot of this stuff starts with a breakdown when government and the private sector don't see each other as partners and start becoming adversarial. It's kind of a universal theme. And it applies here as well to especially land use out West where it's a real issue and been an issue from the beginning. I figure it'll be an issue for a long time to go. Okay, let's talk some trees. Problem with trees are, I, I just had to trim some off my property, is a tree close to your house is a bomb waiting to go off. Out west, they're fuel for wildfires. It, the perception is wildfires are getting worse and worse. There's also data saying that they're getting worse and worse. You brought it up that there's some market stuff trying to address this and not just the usual uh, government programs, because frankly, and I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too far, Forest management is one of those things nobody wants to talk about until something's on fire, and then nobody wants to talk about it afterwards, but it's vitally important, isn't it? Oh, it absolutely is. Yeah. Um, so to provide a little context on, on what is often described as the wildfire crisis, um, wildfires are getting larger and hotter, um, in large part as a result of over a century of fire suppression policy from the Forest Service. Um, basically that, that policy of putting out all fires as quickly as possible 
disrupted natural fire cycles. I think it's worth noting that wildfire is a really important part of a forest ecosystem. Um, it has regenerative benefits. Um, and so our suppression policies disrupted natural fire cycles um, and it led to a buildup of fuel sources in our forests, um, which means there's more fuel for a wildfire to consume. Therefore the fires burn hotter um, and longer. Um, also the wildfire season is sort of um, expanding, um, especially as we see drought conditions throughout the West. So fires are starting earlier and they're lasting longer into the fall. Um, so this, this problem has been growing um, and the Forest Service has identified uh, 80 million acres in need of restoration. That's their backlog right now. 63 million of that 80 million um, are, have been identified um, at a severe risk of catastrophic wildfire. So that's a huge backlog. And at the current pace and scale, the Forest Service, it will take decades, multiple decades to address the full backlog. And of course, over that course of time, the backlog is going to continue to grow. So it's really, it's a huge problem that it's, it's going to take a lot of effort to really get our hands around and get ahead of it. Um, and thankfully, the private sector, some really interesting, innovative financial tools have emerged um, that are helping increase the pace and scale of that restoration. Uh, one group that's doing this is called uh, Blue Forest, um, and they, in partnership with the World Resources Institute, pioneered what's called the Forest Resilience Bond. And it's a simple model, but it's brilliant. It basically brings stakeholders together to fund this kind of work. So uh, they, they pool money from... Uh, like an impact investor or an insurance company to put the money up front for the bond to get the restoration work done. And then stakeholders who would benefit from forest restoration, like a you know water utility in a particular municipality, um, they agree to pay back the bond at a reasonable rate of return once the restoration is complete. Um, so it's a really cool model to just get capital on the ground to increase the pace and scale. Yeah, one thing that doesn't get covered on these wildfires is this is a huge financial problem, especially in smaller rural communities, even in a big state like California. These are usually rural towns or rural municipalities that get wiped out by these fires. They then, you know, you imagine a small town having to completely redo all of their infrastructure, for example, which is what happened because people don't realize, you know, wildfire can destroy a road. You don't think of something like a road burning, but it does. It tears the asphalt up. It's got to be redone. Um, just talk about that for a second, that this is one of those things when you're talking about wildfires and forest conservation, this is one of those things where, yeah, you better spend some money for prevention because if you don't, the expense of trying to fix it after is astronomically more expensive for everybody, especially taxpayers. Oh, completely. Yeah. Um, and, and one example of sort of infrastructure that's threatened from wildfire are, are watersheds and then therefore what the water supply to a community um, here in Bozeman, for example, uh, the Forest Service has been trying to do restoration work around our local watershed to ensure that our water source isn't polluted if, you know, it's not even if actually, it's when a wildfire comes through that area. Um, and if they can mitigate the severity of the wildfire by doing, you know, prescriptive thinning and prescribed burning around the watershed to protect it, that would be great. Um, unfortunately, that project has been delayed literally by decades uh, because of litigation. Environmentalists don't want to see, you know, any trees 
thinned or cut. And so they've stopped that project. And the reality is it's a huge risk. Like when, when that fire comes, uh, it can destroy your watershed and then your entire community is at risk. Um, so that's where the forest resilience bond, they, the first pilot project was conducted in the Tahoe national forest in California. Um, and one of the stakeholders that agreed to pay back the bond was the Yuba water council. Uh, cause they saw an interest in getting this kind of restoration work done to protect their water source. Um, so again, it's just a really, uh, it's a really innovative tool to just kind of get resources on the ground quickly. Um, and one thing I'll note about that to kind of illustrate how it did increase the pace and scale, the forest service, um, which I should note blue forest works in partnership with the forest service. So it's not just like rogue people going out into the forest and chopping down trees. They work with forest managers. Um, but the forest service noted that because of the private capital through this forest resilience bond, they got that restoration work done in four years as compared to the estimated decade it was going to take if it was left up to the forest service alone. Yeah, and that's where this uh, public-private partnership really comes in. We've seen it with things like infrastructure projects. Um, both presidents, Republican and Democrat, they will talk about this when they go to do infrastructure. All of a sudden, if they want to do it fast, they'll bring up those public-private partnerships. That's the flexibility you're talking about because people will tell you fire seasons, every fire season is different, weather patterns are different every single time, and you've got this backlog that has the Forest Service trying to work on a decade timetable. That's just not sustainable. Talk about what the problem here is because I think we oversimplified how much of it is bureaucracy, how much of it is legal entanglement because a lot of these areas get tied up in court through environmentalist groups and the government themselves on fair usage, things like this. I suspect there's a spectrum of problems here, but kind of break it down, you know, what's bureaucracy, what's just out and out neglect in some cases, what's tied up in court, and then what of it is, is just time's moving way faster than the government and the private sector can keep up with it. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I, I would say historically, sort of the Forest Service's suppression policy is what really led to the severity of the problem we're dealing with. Um, they, however, have realized, and even the Biden administration has acknowledged that, like, we need to actually do this type of restoration work. So, thankfully, there's been a, there's been a shift in sort of perspective and motivation there. Um, now, the hangup is largely bureaucratic. So, there are um, really, really lengthy environmental review processes that um, any that the service, the Forest Service, has to go through um, to to actually implement forest restoration work. Um, there is NEPA, which is uh, uh, one um, process, environmental review process that I think people are familiar with um, that can delay forest restoration, you know, projects by like seven plus years. Um, so it just, it, it, it um, you know, NEPA is designed to protect the environment to make sure that any, any projects that are being done on the environment are, be, are being done so in a way that, that protects the environment. Um, in the forest restoration context, unfortunately, NEPA is actually preventing work that needs to be done to protect the environment. It's actually doing the opposite of what it's supposed to be doing. And it's actually putting our forests at risk because it's delaying this urgently needed restoration work. Um, and then there is the threat of litigation, which like the Bozeman uh, Municipal Watershed Project example I shared, um, litigation can delay these critically needed projects by, by decades. Um, so there's thankfully an understanding that we need this restoration work, but now we need to amend regulation and, 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 and sort of hedge against litigation to get this work done. 
Um, we know it's an election year. This stuff is not going to show up on any of the top 10 issues. This isn't, you know, abortion or the war in Ukraine or inflation or the economy. What should the average person that does care about conservation be doing to kind of keep pressure on folks? Because we know the old, well, call your congressman. Well, that doesn't really work that much. What can folks do on their social media and just their average interactions to talk about these issues in an effective way, do you think, especially in a campaign season where there's a lot of things that are a lot noisier, but when the forest fires come into your house or you run out of water or the elk encroach and get your cattle herd sick or whatever the case may be that we're talking about, all of a sudden it's a pressing issue. Uh, How should folks talk about this just in their normal social media interactions, do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I guess because these issues aren't really going to grab national headlines, I think keeping trying to keep a, a, a local perspective and and work, you know, with your local representatives, if that's possible, you know, tag them, I suppose, on social media and maybe try to like, you know, get it, make it trend. Um, that's, of course, difficult. But I also think, you know, looking again to the private sector, there's a lot of really innovative conservation groups and businesses that are trying to solve these problems privately. Um, and frankly, if the government doesn't care or it's too tied up in its own red tape to actually move to make to make progress on these problems, then let's look to the innovative private sector and let's take this issue into our own hands um, and get the work done uh, on our own. Um, and, and thankfully that's, that isn't such a tall order. There, there are people doing it. Um, so I would encourage folks to, to look into, you know, their local community and see what groups are doing, are doing private innovative work and, and see how they can support that. Yeah. And we said it back earlier in the conversation, uh, public private partnership, government needs to be a partnership with the public and with businesses. Sometimes the government's got a better idea. Sometimes business has got a good idea. And if you don't have a partnership, you don't have any mechanism to pick and choose which one's good. Kat Dwyer, this is excellent stuff. Really appreciate your time talking about this. We'll get you back sometime to update it, but until we see you on Tell again, let folks know where they can follow you, uh, your social media and what you got going on, my friend. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Kat J Dwyer. Uh, I share all my writing there. Um, and then you can tune in to my weekly podcast, uh, with my co-host Steven Torna. It's called the whiskey bench podcast. Um, and we don't just talk about whiskey, we drink whiskey, but then we talk about world events, economics, politics, you name it. Yeah. All those things go better with whiskey. I'm told a yes. uh, little lubrication for the tough topics of the day. Uh, that's cat with a K by the way, kids, when you go to search it up on the Google machine, uh, her, uh, social media is on the lower third graphic there. And we are linking to her piece in the show notes, cat Dwyer, another one of those great young voices contributors. Great conversation. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you, ma'am. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. Yes, ma'am. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.